0: Let's pray. Father in heaven, I just invite you to continue to move and work in this service, continue to speak, continue to make your presence known. I pray that uh, you would move and work through me, uh, you would move and work through your word. You, you tell us that your word is sharper than any two edged sword. And so, uh, the thing I am I, so encouraged about that promise is that your word has the power to separate us from our brokenness, from our sin, uh, from. It just has an innate power to reveal to us what is true and what is a lie. And so I just pray, Father, that we would trust your word today. We would trust your Holy Spirit that brings that word to life and makes it powerful and useful in us each day. I just trust you, Lord, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, I have to tell you, I'm very excited about today's conversation, I think one of the common complaints that as, as pastors that we hear from people is, I don't hear God speaking in my life. I don't hear God talking or communicating with me. How do I know God is there if, if I can't hear him speaking to me? And what we're going to talk about today, I believe, is a surefire way for you to experience God speaking into your life. I believe it's a surefire way for you to experience God turning up the volume and you hearing God when life gets loud. But before I jump into that, I thought I'd, I'd tell you a good story. I wanted to tell you a story about how my mom almost blinded me when I was a child. Okay. You, I knew somebody was going to laugh. This is a serious story. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> my mom almost blinded me as a, as a child. I, I remember it distinctly. I was very little elementary age and my mom was being a good mom. She was scrubbing my face. And I remember she, would, she was scrubbing in the corner of my eye, and she would scrub and scrub and scrub. And she had this frustrated look on her face, and uh, she would move the rag out of the way, and she'd get her fingernail, and she would scratch and scratch and scratch. And then she would scrub some more and scrub some more, add some soap, add some water. And she just kept scrubbing in the corner of my eye until she finally, thankfully realized I have a freckle in the corner of my left eye. I almost didn't have a freckle anymore, but she thankfully realized that I have a freckle in the corner of my left eye. Now, here, that, that, I love that story. I, I embarrass my mom with that story all the time. But here, here's a painful truth about that story. My mom was trying to help, right? She was trying to help, but her perspective and her approach were actually hurting me. She wanted to help, but her perspective and her approach were actually hurting me. And sadly, we can often do the same thing when those around us fall into sin. Our perspective and our approach can actually hurt more than it can help. And that's why I appreciate so much uh, Galatians 1, uh, 6 through 10. Darren did a great job, by the way. Yeah, I, mean, I really appreciate that. You had a lot of verses, so I appreciate your hard work there. Um, I appreciate so much as I was studying this, I, I came across a, a theologian, Scott Magnitus, his name. And here's what he, he said describing Galatians 6 that I found very interesting. He said that Paul, who wrote Galatians, was not as much concerned with the sinner in those verses as he was the restorer. I found that very interesting. I agree with Mr. McKnight, but I, I think that should cause us to, to ask the question, why? Why would Paul, who was a missionary for the church of Christ, who was a, a missionary of the gospel, in, the, in this text be more concerned with the restorer than with the sinner? And I think the reason Paul is more concerned with the restorer is because we learn a lot about ourselves in the context of caring. When we attempt to care for somebody else, I believe we open avenues for God to speak boldly into our lives. And so I think Paul would say, and I agree with him, that that, that attitude, you've all heard that, that attitude, that statement, they can live however they want as long as it doesn't affect me. You heard that? Well, they can live however they want. They can believe whatever they want as long as it doesn't affect me. I think Paul would say uh, that doesn't cut it. That is not an appropriate attitude for those of us who have the spirit of God in our lives. That's not an appropriate attitude for us to have because that attitude is affecting you. That attitude of whoever makes whatever mistakes they make, that's up to them to figure out as long as it doesn't affect me and doesn't affect my life and affect the people that I care about, that's actually preventing you from knowing yourself more. That's actually preventing you from realizing what room you have to grow in your life. It's limiting an opportunity for God to speak into your life. According to Galatians six, all of us who have received the spirit of God have a responsibility of restoration for those who are caught in transgressions. Did you hear what I said there? We all have a responsibility. It's not just up to Rick, Roman, Charlie, and Kim when somebody falls into transgression, when somebody stumbles into sin. It's not just up to those four to guide them to restoration. Romans, or excuse me, Galatians six says we all carry that responsibility if we have received the Spirit of God. Now, how do I know that? First of all, I think uh, Galatians six clearly uh, tells us that. In fact, if you go back and you look at verse two. It says, in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ, the law of Christ. And so I think a good Bible study question for us to ask ourselves when we read that is, okay, well, what is the law of Christ? If, if loving our neighbors ourselves, and guiding them to, trans, to, to a place of restoration after they fall into sin, if that is obeying the law of Christ, then I, I want to know what the law of Christ is. And we actually, it's interesting, we can find an answer to what Paul, or what Paul says in Galatians 6. We can actually find an answer to it in Galatians chapter 5. And I'd actually encourage you after after our discussion, after this series, for you to go back and read Galatians 5 and 6 at the same time. Because they really, I I believe, should be read together. But Paul answers that question for us. Galatians 5.14 says this. For the whole law is summed up in a single commandment. You shall love your neighbor as your neighbor self. If we want to fulfill the law of Christ, we will make it a commitment to love our neighbor the way that we would desire to be loved. And I would have to tell you that attempting to love your neighbor and help restore them, help restore those who have fallen, it'll reveal a lot about you Anybody who's ever went through that process knows that to be true. Uh, When you're trying to love your neighbor and guide them out of a place of sin into a place of healing, uh, you're gonna find out if you're faithful or if you give up easily. You're gonna find out if you're compassionate or if you get frustrated with their weakness. You're gonna find out if you are loving or if you're hateful. This experience is gonna reveal that to us. You're gonna find out if you're patient or if you get annoyed at the pace that they heal. As you engage in this process of leading somebody to restoration, the Holy Spirit's gonna reveal these things about you. And the reason is because many times when we're trying to help the broken, God sees an opportunity to turn up the volume and address brokenness in us. And I think it's for this very reason that, Satan tries very hard, very hard to put up a roadblock of pride between us and those around us. And he especially is successful and is targeting, putting roadblocks between us and those who have fallen. And, we, and that pride kind of reveals itself in comparison. Well, I'm not as bad as so-and-so, or I don't commit sins like so-and-so. And that, that spirit of pride hurts us all, doesn't just hurt the one who has fallen into sin, it hurts those who have the calling of restoration as well. I love what John Henry Jowett says, he says, the touch of pride is never the minister of healing. The touch of pride is never the minister of healing. Now I'll say, I mentioned earlier that pride causes us to compare, and I wanna be honest, I don't think comparing is really the problem. Us comparing ourselves is really not the problem. The problem is who we are choosing to compare ourselves to. See, we fall into that temptation where pride trips us up as we start comparing ourselves to those around us. Oh, well, I'm doing pretty good. I've been to church four times this month, but old Johnny down the street, he was only here two times. I'm doing a lot better than he is. Sorry if your name is Johnny in here. I'm not talking to you, okay? Sorry about that. I should have used my own name. But we compare ourselves to those who have fallen. And so what does that do? It tells us I'm okay because I'm not as bad as this person. I don't have any issues to worry about because at least I'm not doing this or that. But see, we're not called to compare ourselves to each other. We're called to compare ourselves to Christ. So if we want to compare ourselves, if we want to gauge how our life, how our righteousness is developing and growing, in the words of John Wesley and Wesleyan theology, if we want to gauge our process of sanctification, we need to compare our lives and our attitudes and our thoughts to Christ's attitudes, lifestyle, and thoughts. That'll probably keep us pretty humble. That'll probably reveal some areas that we need to, to grow. That comparison should keep us compassionate and gracious to those who are struggling. And I want to warn you I, this, this whole pride thing, this whole comparison thing, uh, it, it's not a, uh, it's usually not an overt thing. You, you usually don't see Johnny coming down the street and be like, hey, Johnny, I'm better than you. That's not usually how it works. It's usually very covert. That's why it's so dangerous. Let me give you an example of how I think this plays out a lot of times. I just want you to imagine all the lights in the sanctuary just went off. They're not going to if you're scared of the dark. It's not gonna happen. Um, Just imagine all the lights went off in the sanctuary. It's pitch black in here. Nobody could see anything. And you hear me, a pastor of the church, call out, hey, does anybody know where the light switches are? Now, if you're in this room, and you know, raise your hand if you know where the light switches are in this room. Okay, awesome. This is going to work because not everybody does. If you know where the light switches are in this room, you have a choice. You have a choice how you're going to respond. Your first choice is to say, oh, my gosh. How does, how does everybody not know where the light switches are in this room? That is so irresponsible, especially a pastor of the church ought to know where the light switches are in this room. I just can't believe somebody would not know where the light switches are, and they wouldn't think ahead and use common sense and make sure they knew where the light switches are. You know what? I'm not even going to tell him. Just to teach him a lesson, I'm just going to let him just scramble around in the darkness and struggle to find the light switches on his own. That'll teach him not to do that again. You know the problem with that? That leaves everybody in the dark. That leaves everyone in the dark. Your second choice is you could use your wisdom, your experience, and your insight to gently guide me in a season of darkness to a place where I could engage the light. And that will not only bless me, it will bless everybody in the room. See, that's the danger of pride. Pride, we think it's really teaching somebody else a lesson or we think it's keeping us outside the problem, but it's really keeping everyone in the dark. If we would humble ourselves and approach this situation in a loving way like we would want to be loved, it would bless everybody and everybody would be able to enjoy the light. Because the reality is, I think Galatians reveals to us, That we all, when we're in a season of darkness, we all wanna be treated with love, with patience, with kindness, with goodness. We all want those kind of attributes when we are walking through a season of darkness. But we struggle to offer those when somebody else is. But I think Paul warns us, and I think he, he does right by reminding us in verse six, he says that God will not be mocked. You will reap what you sow. So in other words, Paul is warning us, whatever you scatter is what will be produced in your life. Again, Willard Taylor, he says it this way. He says, you cannot reap love and friendship out of greed and stinginess. It won't work that way. And in, in, in Galatians 5, Paul goes on to remind us what sowing to the flesh or sowing to our own selfishness, sowing to our own pride, that whole attitude of whatever they do is up to them, that's their problem, that's not my problem. Sowing to that type of perspective and that type of attitude It produces this. This is Galatians 5, 19 through 21. It says, Now the works of the flesh are obvious, fornication, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, inhumanities, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. So let me paraphrase that for you. Having that type of attitude leads to broken relationships and broken lives. Focusing on yourself and just what can benefit you leads to broken relationships and broken lives. But Paul doesn't just leave us there. He actually gives us something to aim towards, something to motivate us. Because he says that sowing to the Spirit, this is Galatians 5, and 23 says, by contrast. So looking at the ugly, by contrast, our other option is the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And he says, for such things there is no law. And so I just want you to think about that. When you're in a season of darkness, what do you want? You want love. You want joy. You want peace. You want patience. Paul is trying to tell us that if we want to reap love, if we want to reap love, We need to find opportunities to sow love into the lives of those who need it. If we want to reap joy in our lives, we need to make sure that we sow joy into the lives of others. And how many of you know that nothing will produce self-control in us quite like guiding somebody else through the process of restoration? You know, that's why, uh, as we were talking about the sermon, that's, that's why so many people have such a profound connection, so, such a profound, they, that God speaks so deeply into their lives when they're on mission trips. There's nothing magical about the mission trip. The power is in the fact that a mission trip tends to cause us to be thinking of others. And we get our minds off of ourselves, and that creates an opportunity for God to speak very boldly into our lives. So as we seek to carry each other's burdens and serve one another and guide one another to restoration, God turns up the volume and he speaks into our own lives. Now, if you're in here and you think I've kind of been picking on the restorers in the room and ignoring all the sinners in the room, don't raise your hand, whichever one you think you are. Uh, This is a good time for you to say, what about the contradiction? Okay? Okay. Anybody wanna say that so I can move on? Thank you, thank you, I appreciate that. What about the contradiction? I don't know if you caught it, but there, there's a, what appears to be a contradiction in verses one through 10. It has nothing to do with Darren. Darren did a great job. Darren said it right. But if you look, verse two says, commands us to bear one another's burdens, right? But verse five says, for all must carry their own loads. What? How can we carry each other's burdens, but everybody has to carry their own load? That, that just doesn't seem to make sense until we actually dig into uh, the, the original Greek words that Paul was using to describe uh, these two scenarios. The word that he used in verse 2, uh, it, it was used to denote or describe a crushing load. Like a load that was too difficult for one person to manage. And that was really describing the guilt of sin. The shame. See, as spiritual believers, we're called to help carry this weight for our brothers and sisters who have fallen into sin so they're not crushed. They're not overwhelmed by shame and guilt. We have a responsibility, those who have received the Spirit of God, to help bear that burden for one another. But the word that Paul used in verse 5, that was actually describing something more like a soldier's pack like a backpack. And so Paul was saying that that all of us as individuals have been given the equipment and the responsibility to personally care for the health of our souls. And so what Paul has beautifully done is he's revealed to us in his wordplay that the relationship between the individual and the community of believers is both and. It's both and. It's not just up to the church and it's not just up to the individual. We need each other within the church to help bear the weight of guilt and shame when we sin. And we need the church to gently, compassionately love us and guide us towards restoration. But Galatians 6 is very clear that we've also been equipped and we have the responsibility to care for the health of our own souls. And if you want some insight of what might be in that soldier's pack, what, what might be in that backpack to help you care for your own soul, I encourage you to read about the armor of salvation in Ephesians 6:10 through 18. I'll give you some insight about what equipment might be in that backpack. But essentially, life within a community of believers is a balance. It's a balance of personal responsibility and mutual accountability. It's a balance of personal responsibility. And mutual accountability. We cannot expect as individuals, we cannot expect the church to do everything for us. And as individuals, we can't do it all on our own. The individual needs the church and the church needs the individual. And God is speaking and moving throughout the entire thing. So just imagine if if you would engage in this process, you would literally be God's mouthpiece speaking hope, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control, speaking those things in the life of a brother or sister who's struggling in the darkness. And all the while that means that God is speaking those things into your life. So I just want you to I just want to encourage you that one of the one of the I don't want to say easiest one of the more obvious ways for you to allow God to speak into your life or for you to engage in the lives of others and focus on loving your neighbor as yourself. Now, as we wrap up, I wanna address real quickly, I think this will come up in in this conversation. I wanna real quickly address a false statement that I think causes this whole process to malfunction. And that's this whole statement of God will never give me more than I can handle. As a prideful lie. as a very prideful lie. God will never give me more than I can handle, so that means I can do it all on my own, and I don't need anybody else. As a prideful lie inspired by our enemy to keep us divided and comparing ourselves to one another. It is incorrect because that attitude of God will never give me anything more than I can handle, that, that is essentially saying I don't need God. We will always run into situations and circumstances that are more than we can handle. That's why we need God. That's why we need the church. I mean, if God would never give us anything more than we can handle, then why would Paul write Galatians 6 1 through 10 and challenge us to carry the crushing burden of shame and guilt for our brothers and sisters who are struggling? We will always run into circumstances that are beyond our, our own abilities and circumstances because we will always need God and we will always need the church. And so I just want to challenge you today. Uh, as, you, as you think about this, as we leave, I just want to encourage you to, to really search your own life and ask yourself this question. Am I, am I ignoring personal responsibility? Am I expecting the church, my mom, my family, my spouse to do everything for me? Am I ignoring personal responsibility for my own the health of my own soul? Or maybe you've got that part figured out, uh, but you're ignoring mutual accountability. Maybe you've, for a long time, uh, been able to ignore your responsibility with that attitude of, like, well, whatever they do is up to them, and that's not my problem. Uh, that's their sin and their issue. Maybe you've ignored the fact that if you're a part of a, a community of believers, if you receive the Spirit of God, you have... Mutual accountability responsibilities. And in either one of those, I would say if you're struggling with either one, you, you need to be engaging in intentional development of relationships of trust. We all need to know each other better. So when we struggle, and we'll all struggle, we'll know somebody we can call, know somebody we can lean on, know somebody who we can trust to get under that heavy burden and help us lift it off of our shoulders. Let's pray.